Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together. A path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future. Welcome to a special episode of Policy Forum Pod this week. Produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University, Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into policy issues facing Australia. This week I'm solo in the studio with my dear friend Sharon Bessel away at a conference. We miss Sharon terribly, but I do have a special treat for this week's pod. The last few weeks and months have been bruising for many of us in Australia and around the world. Wars in Ukraine and now Israel and Palestine climate change offering us the warmest year on record. And at home here in Australia, both a cost of living crisis that has many people stressed and a referendum on Indigenous voice to parliament that's been defeated in a divisive and often unkind debate. We are in complex, challenging and distressing times. So today on Policy Forum Pod, my guests offer us a balm, a moment away from division and destruction toward creativity and connection. In the context of the sorts of social and environmental challenges that we've seen just in 2023 alone, the need for creativity is increasingly apparent. These complex problems demand innovative solutions that can address the multifaceted issues that we face in our world today. Creativity at its core is the ability to generate novel and valuable ideas or products, whether it's devising eco-friendly technologies to combat environmental issues or whether it's creating socially impactful initiatives to address pressing societal concerns. Creativity is an indispensable tool. Creativity is a fundamental aspect of human cognition, distinguishing us from other species. It plays a pivotal role in various aspects of our lives, from the way that we plan for the future, for how we solve intricate problems, and even the narratives that we construct to make sense of the world around us. One field that beautifully illustrates the interplay between creativity as both an input and an output is music. Musicians draw upon their creativity to compose original pieces, blending harmonies, rhythms and melodies to create something entirely new and emotionally resonant. At the same time, when we listen to music, it stirs our own creative thoughts and emotions, sparking unique interpretations and even inspiring us to create art, stories or other forms of expression. This dual role of creativity in the realm of music exemplifies its profound impact on human culture and underscores its significance in addressing the complex challenges in our societal and environmental landscape. So joining me today on Policy Forum Pod are two wonderful guests who understand and practice creativity in extraordinary ways. Professor Leanne Gabora and Professor Kim Cuneo. Kim is the outgoing head here at the School of Music at the Australian National University. And this month, Leanne is a visiting scholar at the ANU School of Music, visiting us from the University of British Columbia in Canada. 
And I was wondering whether we might start today's discussion by asking the two of you to more fully introduce yourselves to our audience. Leanne, could we start with you? Sure. Thank you for that nice introduction. And I totally agree with what you said about the importance of the problems we're facing now and the complexity of them. Yeah, as you said, I'm a professor at the University of British Columbia. Uh, I'm based on the Okanagan campus, and uh, I'm based in the psychology department, although I would consider myself more of a, a very interdisciplinary cognitive scientist. My master's degree was actually in theoretical biology, and then my PhD officially went through the math department, but it was uh, extremely interdisciplinary. But um, all along, probably if I had made it as a, uh, a writer or a musician, I probably never would have become a professor. So I, I, uh, but I bring these lifelong interests in the arts and the humanities into the work that I do. That's a fantastic introduction. Now, Kim Cunio might be a familiar name, I hope, to many of our Policy Forum pod listeners. He has, in fact, hosted the pod previously. But, Kim, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Oh, look, hello there, Anna Greta and Leanne. It's so wonderful to be with you. So my name is Kim Cunio. I have the privilege of being here at the helm of the ANU School of Music, which I've been for some years. When I'm not doing that, I compose music, and I compose music really night and day. But I also, I'm one of those people who can't stop playing. So I probably play about 20 instruments badly and a few well. But my whole thing is that music to me is a universe. But what I love about being at the ANU is I'm able to think of what it's like to, to be that person, but then also to be an advocate for, for music. So I like to see my second persona as the person who stands in the way or stands up for music. And I think it's a really important thing to say that music and the creative arts right now are more important than they've ever been. And in your introduction, you said to us why they are important. It's like we've lost control over the world. The only thing we can take control of is our own inner lives, and our own inner lives can only be taken control of through some sort of artistic or spiritual practice, in my opinion. Oh, it's such a fantastic way to introduce today's discussion. I'd love to start, we're talking centrally about creativity today, and I would love to start by asking you both to describe creativity and perhaps to reflect on some of the scholarship that underpins our traditional understanding of the processes of creativity. Leanne, could we start with you? What is creativity? Yeah, so ecologists have traditionally defined creativity in terms of the outputs of the creative process. So it has to be new and it has to be useful where useful is broadly defined it can be it can incorporate just having some kind of aesthetic appeal or being task appropriate but i've defined creativity very differently i've been led to view it as a process that results in internal transformation so something that alters your mind either subtly or dramatically the way that your mental model of the world is configured and I and the the way that I came at that was that I view creativity as the process that fuels cultural change, or in fact, that fuels cultural evolution. And uh, our minds are actually evolving over time. They are undergoing a process of cumulative, adaptive, open-ended change, and so it's a process of evolution. And it does that because our minds are self-organizing and self-mending, and uh, they take what they have inputted through our senses and they reorganize it and they reshuffle it and they look on it from different perspectives and uh, they come up with new richer understandings and webs of meaning. And our creative process is what enables us to do that. 
And then, so just to take us back to where we started, the reason why I believe music is so important, well, first of all, it just touches us so profoundly. So it's a, a reliable way of getting people to feel things and in fact, have peak experiences. But uh, it does that by putting patterns into our mind and then allowing us to see how the how the composer has sort of made sense of or reshuffled some kind of life experience, whether it be real or imaginary, and created new patterns out of that, created no un- new understandings out of that. And so music is a template for how we take life experiences and reshuffle that and make make sense of them and come to terms with them and understand them in new ways. In fact, there's data showing that uh, Nobel Prize winners, in fact, tend to have an avocation in the arts, very often in music. Uh, it's widely known that Einstein was a very talented violinist. And I think there's a logic to that. It really There's also data showing that it alters people's brains when they take up an instrument and when they um, familiarize them with themselves with the, the rules of music. And, uh, and when they start to compose, interesting things are actually going on in their mind as they're engaged in that act of composition, and even when they're, when they're just listening to music. So it is something that makes us smarter, that can also put us better in touch with our, our deepest selves, our higher selves, um, as it were. And it reflects back at us the world that we live in. And so I think these are really important things to keep in mind at this time when in Canada, and I think in Australia too, there have been attempts to uh, lessen the art, to, to, you know, just take funding away from arts programs. And I think there couldn't be a worse time to do that. Because as you said, we need creativity. We need cultural change. And music provides us with new ways of feeling, new ways of understanding, new ways of appreciating each other, new ways of appreciating different cultures. And so I think more than anything, it's a really important time to keep the, the arts alive. Kim, I'd love your reflections on on the nature of creativity and what it means. And I really, that some of these, the concepts that Leanne's already explained, of the self-organising and self-mending processes that alter our internal mind, it's a beautiful framework. What are your reflections on creativity as a, as a composer and lifelong musician? I just wanted to, first of all, agree completely with what Leanne said. I think it's profound, and that's why we wanted her at our school for, for a period, to, to enable someone who thinks uh, outside of our discipline to have a critical but loving lens into our discipline. So it's been really exciting for us. For me, creativity is our birthright. And actually, if you look at young people, young people are inherently creative. You just see children playing in the playground, and you know this has been written about many times, that the natural state of young people, usually until the age of seven or eight, is quite a creative state. And concurrently, as we educate people, we seem to educate the rampant creativity out of them in order to make them so-called more malleable or better or more organised. And certainly in my field of music, I've seen it throughout my life. I'll give you a little example. Now, say, for example, I'm with a child who wants to learn art. Uh, that child will possibly do finger painting, will possibly do whatever they want, and they're told, you're, you're wonderful. Thank you, Freddie or John or whoever you are. Uh, that same Freddie or John, when they go to a music class at six or seven, is often told, your finger's in the wrong place, you're wrong, that's a bad tone, you're not playing that music right. So we have something in my discipline that makes me want to really stand up for creativity to say that actually we need to do loving things for young people to, to keep it up. And certainly in my life, that's what I've tried to do. I believe very strongly that there is a zone 
And so it's a zone that non-musicians, non-artists can be in all the time. But the funny thing is, it's just that sometimes when we're busy, we ignore it. The difference between the artist and the non-artist is that when that zone comes, we're usually willing to drop everything to stay in it. So we don't mind if the dinner's bad or the toast is burnt. That will actually say that this is the time I'm going to actually really make this happen. So it's possibly that ability to stay in in a heightened state, or sometimes even if we're lucky, to be able to create that heightened state in ourselves. You know that I can never pronounce his name properly, but what Szymanowski described as the flow state. You know that is inevitably available to all of us. And what I think a musician can do well is either. It can be either in the creation or the interpretation of music. Somehow something amazing can happen to us. We lose sense of time and place. And then that radical reorganizing and self-repair that Leanne has talked about, it sort of happens in the background. And then we make it, we, we, we sort of turn our gaze to ourselves and we're like a different person in a subtle way. And once we do that five or six times in a short period of time, it's like a really positive affirmation of why why the arts are needed because we sort of become a bit more profound from the inside. And this is the last part of my answer. We then become people who can make sense of the dissonances of the world by being used to being in uncomfortable or slightly strange spaces and live with them. We can be the ones who are enabled to bring the, the polar opposites together that can't exist. It's only really the artists and the creators who are able to do that. And so it's, as we've all said already today, this is why we need the creative arts to stop us going into binary opposition all the time. Absolutely. The, the central importance, and I know many people will use music as a way of recovering from difficult situations and seeing new ways to approach complex problems. Leanne, I'd like to spend a little bit more time thinking about the theory around creativity. And you've spoken about the honing theory of creativity. Uh, and the relationship that creativity has with human evolution. I wonder if you might explain some of those factors for our audience. I would love to. I would like to add on to something that you just hinted at yourself, though, and that's that music is also therapeutic. So it can help people release painful memories. It can sort of provide a backdoor entrance into painful memories and help some kind of therapeutic release of repressed emotions. And, and in fact, uh, it turns out that art therapies, including music therapy, are as effective as talk therapies in establishing more adaptive beliefs and coping abilities. But also, just to point out that we are living in an era, especially with AI, that, uh, you know, anyone who is just feeling isolated or alone could just go down to their basement and jailbreak a large language model and use it to build, you know, the next virus that uh, infects all the computers or that, that affects our physical bodies or just the next nuclear weapon. And uh, what we don't want is we don't want people feeling isolated. We don't want pe people feeling alone. Uh, we want to be building a society that embraces everyone. I think that's just the most ethical things kind of society to build, but also because of these heightened threats. And so we want to enable everyone to feel seen and to feel heard and to feel less alone in whatever experiences that they might be having and to promote cross-cultural understanding. And music is a particularly effective way 
of making people feel seen. Everyone has musicians that when they hear these musicians, they just feel like they're not as alone in the world. So I just wanted to add the therapeutic aspect of music um, onto what we were talking be about before with respect to the benefits of music. Yeah, tremendously important stuff, particularly, I think, in the world that we're in at the moment. Uh, but yeah, in terms of the theory of uh, of creativity, as you said, I have been developing a theory of creativity and it did arise from my earlier work on in what sense culture evolves. Uh, and so I, I came to this view of how culture evolves as uh, by studying the origin of life. And uh, that might seem a very unexpected way to go about it, but it turns out that very early life, it evolved in a way that was uh, like cultural evolution. It did not have the key signature of a process of natural selection. And that key signature is the lack of transmission of acquired traits. So for example, if you have uh, internal model of the layout of the streets and roads of Canberra, or you know, if you have a tattoo or something like that, none of this will be transmitted to your offspring because it was acquired during your lifetime. And in a process that evolves through natural selection, creativity is what fuels this change. It's what allows our minds to grow and adapt and evolve over time. And uh, this new kind of evolution, or in fact, it's not new, it's even older than natural selection, um, but this kind of evolutionary process that we've said can describe very early life and can describe the creative processes that guide the transformation of worldviews or mental models of reality in a second form of evolution, cultural evolution, we've called this self-other reorganization. So yeah, it's a formal framework for evolution that entails self-organizing within, self, sorry, self-organization within agents, and then communal exchange between agents. So not only are we creative, but we exchange ideas between ourselves. And so it's through this interlacing of internal change from within, so the creative process, and external interactions between agents and that can either be directly by talking to your neighbors, or it can be indirectly mediated by the stuff that they put into the world, right? So listening to a piece of music that somebody else made or reading a book that somebody else wrote, it's through this interchange of both the uh, external exchange between agents and the internal changes going on within agents that culture evolves. And so I think it's a um, really important, it's the key, process that drives this second evolutionary process. It's an extraordinary framework and it, it really underpins just the tremendous central importance of creativity and the way in which we share the arts, stories, music, etc. within our societies. And Kim, that's a natural place for us to take the conversation toward the work that you've done. And you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast the number of instruments that you play. And I, I think you actually underestimated that number from our previous conversations. I know it's an example of just how diverse your perspective can be. Kim, your history, your stories, your work, it explores the role of intercultural music in making sense of our larger world. And I wonder if you could unpack a little bit of that for our listeners today. 
you know, I'm very happy to, and I'm going to try and unpack it up alongside some of the framework that Leanne has talked, because it's it's one of the, the real joys of having her in our school for the time. I want to actually just start with a, a I guess you'd say a little thank you to, because uh, Leanne's come to us due to some connections of some wonderful colleagues at, at NIDA, uh, Dr. Sue Wolf and Dr. Stephen Sewell. And basically, I think about five years ago, I heard of some work at NIDA to try and systematize creativity into their, into their work, particularly their Masters of Finance in, in Writing. And I got quite excited. So we started a dialogue that has led, amongst other things, to Leanne coming with us. And one of the things we've been trying to do at the school is to look at Leanne's way of thinking and just in a subtle way to say, how might that change how we how we do our daily business? Because really, we're a school. We're a whole place. It's a building that is looking to make and systematize creative people. And so my point would be, if I'm sort of there at the helm of something that wants to make creative people, it would be really bad if I wasn't creative, no matter how busy I am. So that's my first point. Uh, it's been really important to me to keep my creative practice up. And I, one year I was so busy, I just decided to get up at 4am every every day and work from four to nine. It was sort of a bit exhausting, but the, the rewards were incredible. So I guess what I would then say about what I do is I discovered at a young age that I was a hard person to be put in a box just because of my cultural eth ethnic background. I'm a, I'm a Jew of Arabic descent. I also have Indian background. And so I, I could never find a safe place to be unless that place was made by myself or my family or, or my community, my sangha for want of a better term. And that just led me to start to think about that I, if I had to make something, I would have to make artistic sandcastles of sorts to build bridges. And I can remember at quite a young age, uh, and my father, who was a, just a wonderful man in my life when I, when I was much younger, he, he said to me, there's a particular repertoire that you're ready to learn now, and it was the, the music of the Sephirat, which is the music of the, the, the Spanish Jews who left Spain at 1492 when Ferdinand and Isabella basically said, you have to leave, and also Islam had to leave. And he said, we have this sacred duty, we have to keep this repertoire going because uh, my family has kept it going for 500 years. We have literally taught each other these songs. So now it's your turn to learn these songs. And I realized that uh, part of what Leanne has said is that, you know, this stuff doesn't get passed on. You know, uh, yes, there's a genetic, you know, and maybe a genetic disposition towards music and myself to do this. And I would hope that there is, and it certainly makes it easier for some musicians. But I had to sit down and learn that music from scratch. And so what Leanne has said to us is that's the role of every creative artist. We have to learn what has come before in order to make something new. And that was a big part of my life when I was younger. Was There were a number of repertoires that I had to take on before I could think of the sort of creative being I would be. And what I notice is it's a bit like with languages. You know, some people speak 10 languages. I just discovered with music, the more musics we immerse ourselves in, we become well, I have a little term, which is bi-musical or tri-musical. And the same benefits that come from speaking multiple languages come to someone when they speak multiple musical forms. And the simple way to speak a multiple music form is to listen to it, to listen to it, and listen to it again, ideally live, but recorded is also okay. And then slowly, just as with a language, slowly we learn to converse. And the hard thing for a trained Western musician is there's all this facility built into the body. So they might want to converse a little bit too early to say, look at me, I've got all these clever things to say. But the longer we can hold back the, the conversing and be a, a taker inner 
of the essence of something, uh, the more transformed we can be from the inside. So I think this is this notion of the self-corrective evolutionary process that Leanne has talked, to, talked about. I've certainly felt it in my own life. And then when it comes to creating, what I've noticed is two things can happen. And this is very much a choice to, to us as living beings. We can choose to say everything has to be perfect in order for me to create. You know, and I think we've all met the great artist or the great person that has to hyper control things. And maybe we also sometimes do that and sometimes we don't. But I think we all know this is in many ways the great myth of the great conductor and everyone has to sit perfectly on their seat before the conductor comes and do them all. I know a really fine composer, for example, who will not start to write until he has literally got the point perfect on about 10 pencils because he doesn't want to have to stop and sharpen the pencil in the middle of writing a symphony. So we all have our ways of this. But the other way about thinking about creative practice is if it is a natural part and a self-corrective part of life, uh, just as someone might think that they just have to go and write an email so the creative person can go and write a symphony or an art song or improvise on an instrument, it could inevitably be as part of our evolution a very, very natural state. And if we take that later view, which I personally like to champion, it takes some of the pressure off being an artist, but it also means that you don't have to have jumped through 20 hoops or 30 hoops or have had this particular background as a child or been to the great teacher to have access to the arts. So there's something incredibly democratic to me about it. So I think I'm quite representative of that because I, I came from a family where we didn't have a lot of money. So there were no music lessons for me as a child, but there was a lot of music that I was exposed to. So I guess you would say my point comes down to an essence that all of us have access to creativity. All of us at any point in our life can take on a creative practice and transform ourselves. I think I'm one small part of the proof of many that this can be done. But what can be wonderful is that by doing that process, we're open up to other people's process. And something else that I want to ask Leanne about is I feel that when we're creatively expressive, when we're expressing ourselves creatively as a regular part of our life, it's like something, some seed opens in us that seems to make us more compassionate towards the experience of others. So I wanted to ask uh, Leanne, and I haven't asked her this question before in her in her visit, whether you see any connection between this the evolutionary processes you've talked to us about and the expression of compassion in us. Yeah, that's a super interesting question. I think that if is the case. When you hear someone's music, you feel where they're coming from emotionally. You feel, you feel like you are landing in an emotional space, and that makes you feel the sort of compassion with them. And in fact, I think creative people, often they grew up in situations where they didn't necessarily feel that kind of passionate connection with the other people around them, but they were getting glimpses that where they would feel at home, that the, the beings with, with whom they would feel at home, they exist out there because maybe they heard some music that really touched them, or maybe they read a book that really touched them. That is my own story to some extent. I remember feeling more inspired in some respects by the artistic works that I encountered here and there in my environment. And if I, I, was, I did take piano lessons and yet I was really ex uh, excited when I heard a piece of music that I knew that I couldn't just sit down on the piano and play it by ear, that I would have to figure it out. And I would literally, I just keep on playing it and keep on working on it, listening to it again and again and again until I could play it myself. And at that point, I would feel this really strong sense of communion with 
the people who had created that music. I, I would feel just as if maybe you had a good meal with people that you know. And then I think, well, the people who do this, who go to these extra effort to really absorb and assimilate the things that they are touched by, they are doing that with works that were made by people who probably also went through that process, who were also in turn really deeply touched by other pieces of music. And, uh, and so then in a sense, all creative people were part of this second lineage, right? Where we are getting to know very, very deeply certain people that we will never actually meet in person, but we're getting them to know them by what they put into this world. And so I think that was my first inklings that there's this second evolutionary process that you can be part of. And in the end, a lot of creative people are thought to have it, the personality trait of being sort of cold and very exacting, um, but to not necessarily be the most empathetic or the nicest or the most reliable people. But I think they are as nurturing as anyone else. It's just creative people, they tend to put their nurturing energy into the creative things that they're working on, right? And uh, it's because humans are the ones that decide whether or not they find us to be nurturing. If you're putting all your creative energy into nurturing a piece of music or nurturing a novel that you're writing, then you won't necessarily have as much nurturing energy to give to other people. So I think they're as nurturing as other people, but they might put it in a different direction. I know these ideas are going to resonate for so many of our listeners, the music, the stories, and the, particularly the way in which these uh, creative elements offer us care and connection and understanding, particularly during times of challenge and change. Listeners, we're going to take a really short break here and we will be back in just a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back to our special Policy Forum pod exploring creativity and music with Leanne Gabora and Kim Cunio. I wanted to start the second half of our conversation by looking at some of the bigger policy challenges, and I, I know both of you have thought a bit about artificial intelligence. Leanne, artificial intelligence is changing some of the creative landscape across a variety of disciplines, and I would love to hear from you the way in which you see this. Is it a threat? Is it a risk? Is it an opportunity? Or is it something else in terms of the role of creativity in our lives? Yeah, this is an issue that many people are currently concerned about, and I think for good reason. I think that it is both. Uh, I think it's an opportunity, especially for creators, because 
it gives us new tools with which we can create. It's a threat for many, many viable reasons as well. And I became convinced of this uh, by listening to a podcast by Daniel Schumacher. So earlier this year, I was interviewed many times about uh, creativity. And uh, the answer that I would give is that because unlike humans, the AIs that exist now, they aren't these self-organizing, self-mending structures. And because of that, there's no self there. They are basically doing what we tell them to do them. And once they've completed the job we've given them, they stop processing. They aren't constantly, unlike a human mind, just taking all of the stimuli around them and assimilating them into this web of knowledge and understanding and working through it and trying to make sense of it. They stop as soon as the job is done. And because there's no self there, I don't even necessarily think that what they're doing qualifies as creative. Because as I said earlier, I define creativity in terms of internal transformative change that contributes to or expands upon your worldview, your mental model of the world, your mental model of reality. And if there's no self, then there's no worldview. There's no mental model of reality. There's no self that is expanding and growing. And, uh, and so my answer up until quite recently was that um, they aren't a threat in the sense that they aren't going to take over the world and have a sense of agency and a sense of autonomy. So in that sense, they aren't a threat. But I've been thinking about it a little bit more quite recently and just realizing that artificial intelligence expands every existing threat. So whether that would be a nuclear threat, you know, they expand not only the range of people that have access to how to build nuclear materials, but they expand upon the different ways in which uh, these devices can be built. And with respect to all kinds of biohazards and bioweapons, the same thing, right? They both bring these, this knowledge to more people and they expand upon the ways in which these things can be done and carried out. And it's just for this kind of reason that I think that artificial intelligence could be a threat. I don't think that they're going to develop autonomy anytime soon and take over, but I think they can be used as a tool, both for good and for bad. But every tool that we've built so far has eventually been used, right? So I think this is the reason why we have to be very cautious. Kim, I know you've also written quite a bit and thought a lot about the role of artificial intelligence, and I know you enjoy the use of technology in music. What are your thoughts about AI and creativity? Thanks for the question. The first thing I want to say is to follow on what Leanne said. I think it's really important for us not to ascribe, you know, some sort of anthropomorphic feeling to what technology is. It's so simple to actually, you know, and it's a bit like our creative processes. We've probably all watched, you know, four or five um, sci-fi movies where, you know, the computer becomes, you know, self-referential and has an opinion on everything and sees us as inherently weak and takes over from us. But uh, they're not really designed to do that. They don't really have an opinion on anything, like literally anything, because they're just zeros and ones. It's really interesting to think that's what binary is. Binary is just a way of re, you know, reducing everything to zeros and ones. But where technology is incredible is that when we get really good with zeros and ones, we can describe anything. 
you know, through through the digital landscape. And of course, that's the revolution before AI that is flowing through that is enabling AI to transform our lives. And I wanted to give you an example just before I get to the AI thing. About 20 years ago, music changed forevermore. And you might have missed it because 20 years ago, if I wanted the sound of a Steinway piano, I had to play a Steinway piano. Now, I'm fortunate we have three at the School of Music, but each of them cost about $450,000. So it's not something you're just going to pick up on the way home. But for about $200, I can buy software that is a recorded version of that Steinway piano. Like someone has actually recorded every single note of that Steinway piano in every velocity a human can play. And they've spent possibly a year or two coding it. And then I can play the sound of that Steinway on like a cheap little keyboard that's $50, but it will actually trigger the exact sound of that Steinway piano. Of course, it is coded, so maybe it's not quite the same. I mean, a good musician can tell the difference, but often uh, a non-musician cannot tell the difference. And the difference might be between film music and TV music. You listen to a feature film, you're still hearing, by and large, uh, an acoustic orchestra, but you listen to, to television music, 80% of the time you're listening to uh, what's called an in-the-box orchestra. It's actually a generated orchestra. Someone writes a score and they literally say, I want my virtual instrument, my fake violinist, to play that lead violin line. No real violinist is involved. They play the individual notes, but an algorithm is working out how to play my score. And I literally just hit the, the space bar and it codes it for me and it plays it. Sometimes it might be good, sometimes it might be bad, but it's an incredible revolution. And versions of this is ha have happened not just in every artistic practice, but in so many mechanistic practices. You know, this is the, the whole wave of change of work that we've seen in the last 20 years. But what AI is doing is, as Leanne said, it's upping the ante. It means that if we're not careful, that uh, we can have algorithms that can make important decisions for us, important philosophical decisions, important distinctive differences. And that's where we do have to be careful. Now, for example, I might have an AI that says whether this person or that person can get into my nightclub if I don't want to employ a bouncer. This is a very prosaic example, right? So, so the AI can say, and the AI could look at the data of who are the people most likely to cause a problem in my nightclub? And of course, I would probably want the AI to do that, right? So, And the data might say that people of a certain ethnicity or color or a certain gender or a certain age group are most likely to cause that. So if someone hits the profile that they're those three things together, they're probably quite unlikely to go into that nightclub. However, that person could be the most gentle, wonderful soul you could ever meet. And so this is a very small example of the dangers of AI. It's not that they're going to take over, but if we're not careful about giving them the right instructions, in other words, if we do not allow our creativity to inform our ethics, then something really silly will happen, which is that we will give away our inherent power of discrimination and goodwill. And so I think that's the situation. But in music right now, it's actually quite exciting because it's a bit different to visual art. In visual art, the data mining has been so so superb really that you can type into various engines and you can say i want a piece like matisse and it will create a new piece like matisse and uh and if you're very careful in your instructions people are winning art competitions and then actually saying by the way i did this on ai so it's a it's a legitimate creative tool for an artist with music it's part of a creative tool we can do one half and another half but we can't put them together so we can actually use it to invent musical structures and you can actually get algorithms now and don't be too scared folks. Uh, you can get algorithms freely that will write music like Mozart or Bach and they're quite good.
they're really quite good, but they're not good enough. And the reason is they don't know how to break the rules properly yet. Mm-hmm. So the great composers know how to break their own rules. So the system, as Leanne says, is self-organizing, self-repairing. It's too predictive unless it has anarchy in it. And the human brain is perfect at feeling anarchy and knowing how much to do. You know, that sense of what sometimes we call it the cycle of rebellion and dissemination. We rebel against something. Then when we get it right, we disseminate it. Then someone else comes along and rebels against it. So this is what humans do in artistic practice. And so we can do we can do something that's quite good in the sort of conceptual framework of it. And then we can do something that's really good at times in the realizing framework. In other words, I can actually go now and I can sample a human voice and I can put it into a voice bot. What a weird term, right? There are voice bots. So in other words, so I can analyze all the traits of my voice, a bit like with the samples I was describing before. And then I can literally type in the score. Sorry to tell you this, folks. You can type in the score and then the computer will play your fake voice bot singing for you. Now, it's still a little bit mechanistic, but maybe in 10 years time, it will be fairly convincing. But the point is, it's still not the real thing. Most people do not feel that excited by it as an artistic listener. But however, I'm not even concerned at the point where it can convince us when it can pass the Turing test of music, because then it will inspire creativity in other people. And so that's the only point where I'd be worried is if artificial intelligence stops us being creative ourselves. But what I found from knowing artists, they think that their kids in with a whole series of new toys to play with. Most artists aren't worried about this stuff at all. They're actually having incredible fun with it. So maybe that's a bit of good news because we're hearing all the doom and gloom about AI. I think that there's still such incredible potential for us to say that we can own this thing and we can actually use it to to govern the structures as long as we pay for human oversight, which funnily enough is a policy thing. It is. I think it's remarkable to think through the challenges of artificial intelligence through that prism of music and creativity. And I have to say the the reading and thinking that I've done about AI uh, highlights the tremendous importance of our imaginative brain. Imagination is going to be so important um, in how we use these tools well. But I'd like to turn now to one more complex problem uh, before we wind up today's discussion. Kim, you and I have shared interest in climate change and in climate action. And I wonder if you might share some of the stories of the work you've done in the intersection between music and creativity and climate action, our understanding of climate change. Look, I'm very happy to do that. And then I'm very interested to see what Leanne thinks of this this mode of working. But we start from the premise that actually both of you have already said today, we have so many intractable problems in the world and it's like we cannot solve them through normal dialogue. So you get people together for a conference, people talk, there might even be a communique, but nothing seems to change. The scientists can tell you the data on climate change, but we haven't changed. You know, uh, the politicians might even go to Paris and we have this incredible thing, but something still doesn't happen, right? It's like there's some hole, some sort of abyss inside us that despite all our goodwill, uh, we don't make that lasting change from the inside or we're not capable of demanding that change strongly enough to really make that change around us because it's to ask for real change can be politically dangerous, even in a country like Australia, but in so much of the world, we know the people who are thinking about climate change are in physical danger. So it's it's a serious, serious thing. This is not just the intractable problem of our generation. It's also the test of our morality as a species. So it's a, it's a huge thing for us to deal with. So like all of us, I want to do something as an artist. And, and I thought, what can I do when I don't really have anything to say? I'm not, I'm not a great climate researcher. But I was fortunate enough to, about six years ago to be invited to the British Antarctic Survey to, to do some work as a creative fellow there. 
and I finished the project I was doing on space weather, which is another story. But I went down to the basement and the scientists said, come and look at this. And they took me down to the cool room where the ice cores are housed. And the ice cores are these amazing things. They're about it's so big, as big as your hand, and you could hold them. They're heavy. They're, they're dug out, and they provide generally up to 140 or 180,000 years of definitive data of the CO2 in the Earth's atmosphere. So to handle an ice core to me as an artist and to feel it melt was one of the most moving experiences of my life. But then I was fortunate. I had a little recorder with me, and I recorded the sound of the CO2 leaving the ice core. So this is what artists do. And I was fortunate that one of the technical staff at the British Antarctic Survey, Pete Bucktrout, did it better than I could do it because they had the really, you know, I travelled with my mobile equipment. They had fantastic microphones and did it at a very high level. And this became the, the basis of a, a series of works. One, one was a, a, a symphony on climate change written for the Canberra Symphony Orchestra that was 25 minutes long. And the first movement, which was nearly 13 minutes, was the transcription of the sound of the CO2 leaving the ice core. And had I written it for instruments without it being that, it would have just sounded like music. But people, when they listened to the sound and they went, wow, this is the sound of something that we need to tell the story of, people were stopped in their tracks just as I was. So I think there's something that can be communicative at a very, very deep level. Now, to go further in this uh, in this work, for, for example, I also wanted something to, to tell the story of this country and what we go through at the time. There was, of course, the Adani name has been changed, but we also we all know about the, the whole story about Adani. I think that's been discussed on Policy Forum part in the past, the whole notion of how do we deal with mining these days. It's a really big thing for a country like Australia and Leanne's country as well in Canada, that these are countries that are dependent still in their economies on, on mining. But I wanted to, to track down what happened to Australian coal if it were to be mined in the Galilee Basin and go to India. So I was fortunate on one of my trips to India, I managed to track down an Adani coal processing plant. And so I did what every good artist did. I just walked in without being invited in and started recording the sound of the coal being processed. Uh, it was a bit silly to do. I possibly could have been detained and uh, to be detained in the middle of nowhere in uh, the state of Orissa on the border of West Bengal is not probably where you want to be detained for too long. But I got this incredible recording and I was able to hear the machinery in operation and the people talking who are processing coal in a country that is having a really big discussion about coal, but a country that also employs many of its First Nations as almost bonded labourers for 50 rupees a day to be coal miners and coal processors. So there's a story that relates very much to our own issues of the First Nations of Australia. So I started seeing all these connective points, and I think this is just what happens to creative artists all the time. And so then getting those things transcribed and getting the orchestra to play those sounds was a transformative experience for a Western orchestra. In the end, even though I tried to score them exactly, the only way we could do that was for me to actually dance those scores for the orchestra. So I actually had to put them into my body and say, we talked through the different extended techniques that would enable it, but then the only way the orchestras could really do this was to say, we can't do it the same every time. And for a Western orchestra that doesn't improvise, that was a transformative experience. So this is a, a small example of what I think the creative arts can do in regards to climate change. I'm still working in, in lots of ways, you know, with the notion of climate change, and we've even done some things together, Anna Greta, that I think is worth telling another time. But I think the point I'd make, like to make at the end is we can never give up. So in order to bring about the change we, we need to bring about, 
We need the artists alongside the scientists, alongside the social scientists, because there's a transmission of knowledge that I feel very strongly about. It's it's actually seeing that all parts of interdisciplinarity are inherently equal. And in universities and in the world, that can be hard because we see for our short-term interests, some things are more equal than others. You know, it comes down to Animal Farm. But if we think to the heart and the historical heart of the university system, it was quadrivium. It was this notion that actually the arts and the sciences did coexist. So for me, actually having a place where knowledge can be transferred from the hard sciences to the social sciences, to the humanities, to the creative arts, and then be circular, like an inbuilt circular economy, is the way that in a, in a city like Canberra, where we have so many smart people, we can be a part of radical change just by fostering this way of thinking. Uh, it's an extraordinary story. And Kim, I'm remembering the work that we did uh, weaving together the human future, thinking about uh, our health and well-being, using music and the creative arts to try and communicate ideas about the importance of acting on climate change. And I would love to be able to talk to the two of you so much more about this and many other issues, but we will need to bring today's conversation to a close. I would like to finish by thinking about the future, a future which is changing quickly. Our social, political, economic and environmental change is notable. And as we focus on the challenges, we often turn to science to offer us the solutions. I think today we've heard from both of you just how important creativity is as we approach the challenges of our future. And I'd like the two of you to perhaps finish today's conversation by helping us to reflect on how creativity will help us create that best future. Leanne? Yeah, well, I thought I would add to what Kim said about anarchy and breaking the rules. It reminded me of a question that I once asked on an exam. And uh, the question was, answer the following in, in a genuinely creative manner. And the question was, Walt Disney was creative because, and then I had an A, B, C, D, multiple choice question. So A, I think was something like he was tuning into the soul of a dead mouse and B was because he was high on acid. And all, all four of the responses that I gave them were just completely ridiculous. They obviously weren't the genuine right answer. And so of course the right answer to that question was, anything except for those four options, A, B, C, or D. And I thought it was such an easy question. It turned out that the first time I asked it, more than half the students actually got it wrong. They actually chose A, B, C, or D. Thought, what on earth? This is a, a class on creativity. Even in a class on creativity, they don't, they don't, they don't answer the, the, the question in a creative manner, even when they're told, answer the following question in a genuinely creative manner. And so following that, I started using this as an example of the kind of question that the students might get on a midterm. So I would show them this question earlier in the, in, earlier in the, um, in the term, and, uh, and then we would talk about that. And then I would use that as a springboard for a discussion about creativity in the educational process and where we lose that, that creative zest. Now, in terms of the other question you were asking, uh, yeah, I think the world is now so interconnected that we need to be creative, yes, but it's not good enough to come up with creative solutions to each of the problems that we face one at a time, because the creative solution to one problem could make other problems worse. And we also have to think about not just the solution, but the unintended consequences, the second or third order impacts that that solution might have. And unfortunately, I think that's something we haven't done enough of in the past. 
for example, we might create a new form of energy, but um, that might create new niches for new energy consuming industries that weren't cost effective enough before that new energy form of energy came into existence. And so we might end up using even more energy as a result. So it's a big, complicated system. And just like I uh, mentioned that our minds are self-mending and self-organizing and that they're complex structures, I think our, our economy and our world system is a self-organizing, self-mending structure. Uh, so that the term that we've been using is an autocatalytic system. All of the inputs were outputs of some other part of the process. And so collectively, the system can be sustainable. And I think we need to start thinking about the problems that we're facing in society, climate change being probably the biggest one, but there are others in this kind of autocatalytic way. We need to get together and not just have experts in each different field working on solutions to the problems in their particular field. We need solutions that work as a way of reimagining and re-envisioning how to deal with the interconnections between the complex problems that we face. Kim? I'm going to be brief because I think creativity is an incredible antidote for materialism. Now, whether it's materialism of things, materialism of ideas, but we've become such consumers in the last 50 to 70 years, particularly in the West. And I think we have to, you know, we just know that this world and the trajectory of the world is unsustainable. Uh, let's just think about economic growth. Economic growth is a weird, weird concept, you know. We will chew through the, all the resources of the world in 200 years if we continue at 4 to 5% economic growth. There's just no other way around it. And people have done modelling that we will chew through the solar system in something like a 1,000 years if we continue at 5% because it's compound interest. So in some ways, we have unlimited growth in the creative practice. So there is actually an unlimited universe within our own brains, just as there's an unlimited universe out there. And that can enable us to turn our attention within. And who knows what is possible when we do that more. That is such a superb place to leave. What has been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kim Cunio and Leanne Gabora. Thanks, Anna Greta. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. For me, it's an extraordinary antidote to some of the polarising and complex conversations of the last few months. This podcast is produced by ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy. If you liked this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at ANU Crawford or through our email address, policyforumpod at anu.edu.au. Our thanks as always to Hannah Scott for production and to Darcy Brompton and Alex Jackson for background research. We are about to embark on a mini-series on housing, which I really hope you enjoy. It's an extraordinary series of conversations starting next week with the economic framework. But for now, that's all we have time for. From me, Anna Greta Hunter, we look forward to seeing you next week. 